Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Hello, readers. It's your host, Stuart, in L.A. I've got a bit of a frog in my throat. I've got a little winter cold or something, but I had to come here to Books and Nachos if for no other reason than to refute the rumor that it's become a full-time Stephen King podcast. It's not true. It's it's true that Arnie, my friend and co-host over at NowPlayingPodcast.com, has been here for the last several months doing a bang-up job, I might add, of dissecting the Master of Horrors earliest books. I'm going to take a quick detour from all of that to present a man who might inspire a different kind of nightmare. His name is Jordan Belfort, and he is the self-described Wolf of Wall Street, who has written not one, but two autobiographies about his notorious fast lane life, shorting stock trades, blowing obscene amounts of money, and fighting to stay high and out of jail. I've read The Wolf of Wall Street, and I've read its sequel, Catching the Wolf of Wall Street. And I'm here to share my thoughts about both of them in this single podcast. Now, I recognize that's a slightly unorthodox approach. I normally like to keep the ratio one-to-one, one book, one show, right? Well, I'm going to make the case here that this really is just one book that was cleaved in half to make double the money. That is, after all, just the kind of trick that Jordan would pull to get rich. It's, it's how he got to where he is. And he's got a lot of money to pay off. Uh, he turned in 1,200 pages of his life as a manuscript to his publisher. It was pared down to 519 pages and published in 2007 as The Wolf of Wall Street. Then all of a sudden, two years later, here comes 468 more pages catching The Wolf of Wall Street But it's not the further adventures of Belford. Contrary to what you might think, it's not about what happens to him as the feds throw him in jail. There's a little bit of that. But largely, he doubles back and fills in the gaps of all the things that he told the first time around. So given that this is the same history told twice and that my feelings are largely the same about both books... I see no reason why I'd give Jordan two different shows. He just hasn't earned two different podcasts. Now, another way that I feel like this show is special is that it marks the first time I'm reviewing an autobiography for Books and Nachos. Bios are are not a part of my normal literary diet, particularly stories about finance gurus. I mean, other than spending one week as a temp on the Chicago Board of Trade, where my miscalculations ended up causing my supervisor to burst into tears when I turned them in. I kid you not. I actually made a woman cry trying to do that work. Clearly, I don't have any firsthand experience in this world, and I am not qualified to vet a Wall Street tell-all. It's not my forte. Frankly, the only reason I'm reading this book at all is because Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio have seen fit to make Jordan the subject of their latest film collaboration. And yes, Arnie, Jacob, and I will be reviewing that new movie, Wolf of Wall Street, shortly. I just thought that since I had to read this source material as research, why not share my thoughts about it here with Books and Nachos listeners? Again, I I don't hold a finance degree. I really don't read The Economist or The Wall Street Journal. I'm out of my element, but I want to put it out there. I don't feel like 
Jordan is writing for wannabe traders or aspiring business professionals anyway. Just look at the book jacket. The tagline on the cover says it all. Quote, I partied like a rock star, lived like a king. This is a juicy tell-all. It is not an economics manifesto. So if you were afraid that you wouldn't understand this book, that you didn't read it because you thought it would go over your head, as I did, fear not. (laughs) Almost anyone with a high school reading level will be able to comprehend the debauchery. Hell, if you can read the stuff that's scrawled in graffiti on a bathroom stall, that's pretty much what you're going to get here. It's debauchery. It's destruction of property. It's dirt. Now, I assumed from the first chapter that this dirt would focus on the story of an idealistic young capitalist who'd fall from grace once he got a taste of the fast life in Wall Street, right? I mean, we do begin in the first book, the first chapter. It's 1987, and a 19-year-old Jordan Belfort is showing up for his first day of work at this esteemed brokerage, L.F. Rothschild. And ironically, his start date coincides with a historic stock market crash. A very bad way to begin. A very bad omen for Jordan and his future. Uh, Jordan's supervisor takes him upstairs to this penthouse lounge where all these other bigwigs are getting sloshed, snorting cocaine, fornicating with hookers, doing anything to get their mind off of what an incredibly bad day they just had. And Jordan would have us believe he's there sipping soda and watching his boss snort cocaine and tell him like it is tell him how his future is going to be and we know he is going to end up just like all these other messed up and unhappy men the real question is how soon is it going to happen and by what means is it going to get to him frustratingly those questions aren't ever actually answered particularly in this first book wolf of wall street which immediately jumps from that moment, six years in the future, to 1993, where Jordan is no longer working in Manhattan and Wall Street, where he has somehow created his own highly successful brokerage in Long Island. He's on his second wife. We never even met his first wife. And the government is actually forcing him to step down. He's only got one more year, and he will be handing over keys to Stratman Oakmont to his friend Danny Perouche. In the movie, he's called Donnie. Most of the names have been changed in the film. I guess it's to protect the innocent. Uh, I don't know how innocent any of these people are, but you will find that Jordan is the only name that's the same on the page and on the screen. But my point is that Jordan is telling you about how he started his first day, and then he's telling you about his last year, and nothing about what happens in between. The second book, Catching Wolf of Wall Street, does go back. It does fill in some of these gaps. It does, I think, share a key insight into how Jordan accomplished his future success. He developed his gift for coercion, selling frozen food door to door. That was actually his first business. Basically, he'd go knock on some Mark's door and say, hey, would you like to buy this meat? It's as good as anything you're going to get in the finest dining rooms of Manhattan, when in fact it was very low-quality meat that you'd find at a school lunchroom or something. But that's the skill. That's what he would take and do exactly the same way when he was trading over the phone with stocks. And we learn in that second book, he explains how he even wrote a how-to manual, that there was a spiel, that basically he could take you off the street cold, never having known any of this, hand you his spiel, 
and you would read it and know how to pick up the phone and call a rich man and be able to anticipate any negativity he'd throw at you and get him to buy your crappy stock. So, you know, those two moments I felt like were really helpful to have learned about. They should have been included in the first book. It was strange that they waited until a second book for those key insights. But then again, Jordan is not about key insights. This bulk of these pages is not about telling you why Jordan did what he did. It's just telling you drunk stories. Endless, endless drunk driving accidents, overdosing on quaaludes, receiving blowjobs from hookers under desks, midget tossing for helping morale, because of course that's what you do when you're feeling down, you throw a little person against a wall. Way too many marital spats with this beer commercial model that he made his second wife. Frankly, it's really tiresome after a while. I mean, this easily could have been called the pig of Wall Street. Calling him wolf implies that he's crafty. You know, someone that dresses up in sheep's clothing to get what he wants. But there's not enough demonstration of Jordan Smarts here, even in that second book and way too much demonstration of his arrogance and his ego. I know I don't like the style, but I don't know that I can blame Jordan for the spotty writing. I actually think the culprit is Tommy Chong. Yes, that Tommy Chong. The one half of the popular Latino comedy duo that actually did go to jail for drug possession. He's in the story as well. He shows up at the end of the second novel as a cellmate of Jordan once the law finally throws him in jail. And he's the one that tells him his life should be a book and gives him a key writing advice tip, which is that he needs to pump up all of the depravity. He's quoted as saying, you write always about the extreme of something, the most of this, the most of that, the prettiest girl, the richest man, the most rip-roaring drug addiction, the most insane yacht trip. Tommy, I love you, but I'd send you back to the slammer for making me read so much toxic prose. I mean, he did Jordan no favor by telling him to focus on all of his callous, infantile behavior. I wanted facts, hows and whys. God forbid, I may have wanted a touch of remorse. But Jordan, in his narcissistic writing state, all he can do is, is tell you how proudly he did what he did. And there's nothing apologetic about it at all. I mean, I hate his voice. I just can't stand having him in my ear as I'm reading these pages, particularly his need to always define everyone that he meets by how they look. I mean, there's a tall Asian guy that works for him, so he's going to constantly be labeled quote, a fucking panda, a deprived Chinaman, he's called Oddball from Goldfinger, another guy wears a toupee, so he's forever wigwam, because wig, you know, get it, hairpiece. I mean, Jordan goes to rehab and makes fun of the, quote, Martians that are trying to get help there. I mean, really, he's going to ridicule people trying to get off drugs? I mean, not only is the humor insensitive, it's not even clever, Calling someone blockhead because they're squarish noggin, that's not funny. Tommy Chong may have been able to turn this into an un-PC comedy routine that would have had me in stitches. But you, sir, are no Tommy Chong. So what I'm left with is hundreds of pages of ugly people fighting over beautiful things. 
Because, oh, Jordan does not get off without telling you all of the name brands that he purchased. all Everything that was a designer label. He wants you to know the exact dollar amount of everything that he destroys. It sounds like bragging. I mean, seriously, this is not atonement. He is proud of what he's done. And indeed, we're not supposed to blame him. Because if he did anything bad at all, well, he's just like all these other ugly people. And isn't he cooler than them? I mean, that's really the attitude here. So right away, I'm going to just say that I can only begin to recommend this book if you're a person that has an insatiable appetite for nouveau riche bad taste. You know, if, if you get a guilty pleasure out of watching Real Housewives or some of that reality TV nonsense, Kardashians... You know, if you got a sweet spot for that, this may be up your alley. For me, I really don't like that stuff. And thank God there was a few genuinely funny things here, but not enough for one book, much less two. I mean, it's a real shame because there is good stuff here. I think the best passage of the entire work comes in the first book where Jordan explains about Swiss bank accounts. Now, all my life, I've, I've heard it alleged, oh, a Swiss bank account, we know what that means, and it's doing something criminal if you have to get a Swiss bank account. Here he really explains how it works and why corporate criminals get their cash out of the U.S. into these protected accounts. It's a whole th- He in- brings in these family members. It's, it's both funny and really insightful and filled with really interesting and varied characters. Best part of the novel, unfortunately, it's only about 80 pages of a thousand. I also think the book is good when it's talking about people that you might have heard of before. For instance, Steve Madden, the shoe designer, is here. He's actually a character. Uh, Jordan is taking his company public. And so we have this really awkward moment where this narcissistic shoe designer is up there trying to explain to all the people that are about to get on the phone and sell stocks of his company to strangers why it's important that they love the Betty Lou high heel shoe. And what he can't notice because he's so wrapped up in what he's done is that there's a bunch of homophobic and macho traders who are about to go kick the shit out of him. And I think not only is this a funny, awkward moment, I think it really demonstrates the difference between maybe what a normal investor is and what Jordan's company does. I mean, normally, I'd think if you were investing in a company, you would want to know about their products. You would want to know about their shoes. Do they have long-standing value? Are they a flash in the pan? Is this a good investment? You'd want to know these things. But it doesn't matter to Jordan and his crew. They couldn't care what they're selling. It could be a shoe. It could be a monkey wrench. They're going to take it, and they're going to cram it down their investors' throats, and they're going to make them buy their shares. It could be poop on a stick, and they'll have them investing. That's the attitude. And it really demonstrates why Stratman Oakmont really is a crew of thugs, honestly. Perhaps why there are so many omissions in the story is that this is bound up in legal tape as well. It's worth pointing out that Jordan did go to jail and that he did have to sign things and that there may be moments and people that are in his story that he's not allowed to talk about. But unfortunately, that just means we spend a lot of time watching Jordan giggling about everything bad Jordan does. But we're not supposed to hold it against him. I mean, the most maddening thing about this man, he's full of things that, that get my blood boiling. But his worst quality is how when he senses that the reader may be judging him or turning against him, 
he holds up his children. He props them in front of him and says, don't hate me, I'm a great dad. Everything that I did was to protect my daughter Chandler. And while the feds were ruining my life, my son Carter nearly died in the hospital of a medical condition. I mean, truly, he's going to play that fiddle. It's the most unconvincing part of a liar's long spiel about themselves. I can't believe that he's expecting us to buy into that. And I'm not sure that anyone is. I mean, truly, the only reason I could tell anyone to buy this book would be to know that the money that you spend on it would get back to all the people that Belford ripped off. Apparently, he's still got a long way to go to paying off that $110 million debt that the court has ordered him to pay for the rest of his life. So that probably means there's going to be more Wolf of Wall Street books to come. There's been two so far. I wouldn't be surprised if filming The Wolf of Wall Street, where Jordan talks about how Scorsese made the movie about him, is coming next. But don't expect me to read it or review it here for Books and Nachos. I am done with Jordan Belfort, at least as far as in print goes. I'm excited to see the movie, but this is a strong not recommend for either Wolf of Wall Street or the slightly more informative sequel, Catching a Wolf of Wall Street. It's just, it's an annoying voice. It's a familiar scam. There's just not enough relevant or interesting to hold the interest for these very, very long passage of times. But hopefully, that's not my feelings about the film. You'll, you can head over to nowplayingpodcast.com and see what I, Jacob, Arnie, what we all make of the movie. I'm hoping Marty and Leo are able to find something in this that makes for a terrifically entertaining and enlightening movie, or at least something more substantive than a flimsy biography about a con artist. And stay tuned to Books and Nachos as well. Arnie will be back soon enough with more Stephen King reviews. I know next up is Rage, a book that was never made into a movie. And given the inflammatory content and current political climate, probably never will be made into a movie. But I've never read it. I'm really looking forward to that review. So a lot of good things coming your way here on Books and Nachos and now playing podcast. Happy 2014, everybody. Keep reading. Keep listening. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for putting up with this froggy throat that I have going on. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.